0: Throw is hell. We're all gonna die. This is hell. On today's show, this year, we've spoken with a few guests who have pointed out that the word radical comes from roots, as Merriam-Webster defines radical, and to be honest, I'm totally into Merriam, but Webster, not so much. Kind of a prick, really. I think it was a huge mistake for Merriam to hook up with Webster, but... Hindsight's 2020, I guess, but I digress. According to Merriam-Webster, the meaning of radical for many centuries was related to its origins. Radicalis meaning root. Radicalis is also a great heavy metal band from Estonia. Merriam continues, screw Webster, simply saying that name sickens me. Until recently, radical referred to the roots of words, the roots of illness, or even square roots. Later, radical was used more figuratively to mean fundamental, and examples like radical reform referred to changing the very root of the system. Now radical is associated with extreme change and deviation from the norm. So radical went from being about looking at the roots, the true meaning or cause of of something, of anything, to under capitalism being associated with extreme change and deviation from the norm makes sense, because if we look at the root causes of any of our problems, we will want to stop what's causing that problem, and what's always causing any of our problems is capitalism. Therefore, under the thumb of the market, looking at the root causes of any problems is seen as an extreme act in the work of a deviant, because it reveals capitalism's not-so-invisible hand at work... Again, we start this week's shows by doing the radical work of looking at the causes of the novel coronavirus disease 2019 with evolutionary biologist and public health phylogeographer currently visiting the Institute for Global Studies at the University of Minnesota, Rob Wallace, who wrote the monthly review article, Notes on a Novel Coronavirus. You will never guess what Rob finds is the cause of COVID-19, never. And I don't want to spoil it for you, but it rhymes with capitalism. Rob blogs at Farming Pathogens, which you can find at farmingpathogens.wordpress.com. Rob has consulted for the Food and Agriculture Association or Organization of the United Nations and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Rob is also author of the 2016 book Big Farms Make Big Flu Dispatches on Infectious Disease, Agribusiness and the nature of science. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, and live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing Alex Jerry. Alex, what did you do this weekend?
1: I mastered the art of using kitchen tongs to cat- throw and catch a tennis ball. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm real good at it now. Are you I'm doing going it... insane in my house. Are you doing it for your dog or your kid or your wife who's <laughs> yeah. chasing the ball? No one's interested in it more <laughs> than me. It's, a, it's like a slightly modified version of that scene in The Shining. Uh,
0: I... Wasted time being annoyed at the fact that, you know, in Italy they're doing these sing-alongs from different uh, porches, you know, people are singing out their windows because they're all in self-quarantine, they're all shelter-in-place. So everybody's doing these sing-alongs in Italy and they're just beautiful because people are singing these wonderful Italian romance songs. Sometimes they're, you know, like in France they're singing the national anthem or whatever, in Britain they're singing songs that are all very traditional songs and they're really, it sounds really great, it's a really great video. Here in Chicago, they decided to do it. I don't know who these people were. They live over in East Rogers Park. Uh, I don't know what's going on over there. But apparently they did a poll that I never saw, heard of, anything. And then all of a sudden they decided that there was going to be a citywide Chicago sing-along. And the song was going to be... Alex, do you know what the song is?
1: Uh, No, but please don't say Sweet Home Chicago, the worst song ever written.
0: That was the first one (sighs) that they did, and that wasn't a sing-along. That was just one block, and it was horribly done as the—it's a bad song. It was horribly done. Nobody knows the lyrics of the entire song, and they were doing it with a karaoke machine as they were pulling it down the street while showing different people in front of their home singing. So that was a horrible—I mean, great to have you all get along. That's great. Horrible, horrible entertainment. The song they chose, Alex, was Bon
1: Jovi's Living on a Prayer. Uh, My next-door neighbor barbecued and blasted Tupac really loud yesterday, so he's got the right idea. That's right. That is exactly the right idea.
0: Good Lord, Living on a Prayer. So now they're trying to figure out what song to do, and they showed the one building that did it It, 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 on TV. The whole thing was just so irritating. Come up with something that's a little bit more, I have a little bit more imagination. Come on brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Alex has this week's
1: hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is... Ugh. Ugh. Cincinnati chili. Have you ever had that crap? Yeah. Ugh. And I mean, even for me saying, ugh, I I mean, I'd still eat a bowl. In an article headline, these 10 regional foods could be hangover cures you need, posted on New Year's Eve, which seems like a lifetime ago, writer Kay Lani reports... This heaping helping of spaghetti topped with a brown <laughs> chili sauce and shredded cheddar damn now it sounds good to me. Is not the most photogenic meal. In fact, Dead Pan once called it the worst regional food dead spin there. Once- I thought it was
0: Dead Spin and then it was in the article is Dead Pan.
1: Oh jeez. Uh, once know. called it the worst regional foodstuff in America. But to Cincinnati locals who have had too much to drink, this dish is a welcoming sight, inspired by Greek immigrants. I wonder if Pete's listening right now. He brought it with, the, with their tradition of spicy stewed meats. This local dish combines carbs, proteins, and grease to help create the perfect antidote to hangovers. So that makes this week's Ever Cure the worst regional foodstuff, according to America. Dead Spin. Yes. I'm telling you, it's Dead Spin. What says Dead Spin in this part of the yes. paragraph? Cincinnati chili.
0: It is Dead Spin. The original article said it was Dead Pan, and then I had to fix the correction once I found the citation. Cincinnati chili is god awful. The future ain't what it used to be. This is Hell. I know this sounds really, really cliche, and I know that everyone is doing this in all the establishment media. But I do want to thank those who are on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic, putting themselves out there at risk, doing what they can to provide essential services, while at the same time implementing every precaution, bringing needed medical supplies to those who do not have direct or easy access to them or who cannot otherwise afford them. So I want to thank, and Alex, I'm certain, I'm certain that you want to thank as well. Thank you to the first responders of the informal, nay, illegal drug market and their drug dealing contingent. Without you, Alex, nor I, would not have made it through this past weekend. Our question from hell for you last week was, what have you already run out of in your personal quarantine? And the winner was Steve C., who wrote fingernails, as in biting them off. My answer was weed and patience with germaphobes, that is. And if I had weed, I would have patience with germaphobes. And this weekend, I had weed, and I did have a lot more patience with germaphobes. Well, drug dealers and not the legal kind that gouge you and force you to be in a small area with other stoners waiting in line as the doofus in front of you considers and the salesperson explains far too many strains of weed. Hats off to you, drug dealers. You really met the challenge and came through yet again. All of us cannot thank you enough. Whether it's the dealer who figured out how you can be paid digitally or the one who discovered it's easy to drop off if certain things are left only slightly, as in bag size, open, for easy no-contact delivery. Congratulations to all of you for easily fulfilling the needs of stoners everywhere while the formal market was failing all of us. And thanks to Cook County State's attorney, Kim Fox, who I did not vote for, Fox with two X's, this weekend, announced that during the coronavirus outbreak, nonviolent, low-level drug crimes will not be prosecuted. We are at a revolutionary moment in weed. The legalization of marijuana created a horrible system that was far worse and more expensive and inconvenient than the old illegal market. This is the time, with Johnny Law no longer busting anyone for dealing, for dealers to step up and put legal weed out of business. I think dispensaries, have closed as a non-essential business, not informal economy. Now, I'm sorry, now, informal economy, crush the legalization that perverted weed with the law. Crush them and let us never speak of anything but decriminalization. Again, speaking of the formal market failing us, we all do understand that the Trump administration's response to the coronavirus outbreak has been completely ideological, trying to fix the problem with the government doing as little as possible, shrinking all its responsibilities, to its citizens and their public health and hopes for the for-profit private sector will fill the demand for you know survival while simultaneously pushing what little responsibility it's still had left on two states, forcing them all desperately to determine how to address the crisis and where to get the supplies necessary for any response to the plague that now haunts us just outside of all of our front doors. You all get that, right? We do all realize that Trump sacrificed human lives so he could finally implement the Republican fantasy of the neutering of the federal government, the empowerment of the states, and forcing the private sector to suddenly fulfill and perform what the sub- public services have done for centuries. Trump was thinking about the victory lapse of proving big government never works, that states should have power not the Fed and for profit industry can solve all of society's issues. We don't need democracy or a government. And he would rather do that. He would rather prove that. Republicans would rather pursue that ideological fantasy than actually saving their fellow citizens lives. The cynicism is so thick they get more joy out of the prospect of trolling liberals and rubbing their nose in it than they do from saving human lives. This abandonment of any sense of unity and the desire for your side to win Was evident throughout the weekend of press conferences that President Trump gave Which are starting to look like hours-long speeches by people like Fidel Castro and Hugo Chavez In fact, I'm pretty certain that with Trump's rallies canceled by the virus He helped spread by doing nothing for so long Trump has decided these press conferences will be his rallies In 2016, he was able to get free airtime When every network would air every second of every one of his rallies And he has figured out how to get that free airtime Again, and some reports claim it is working with his approval numbers on handling the virus actually going up recently, especially amongst Democrats on Saturday. After President Trump commended the U.S. for displaying such amazing unity over the last few days, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development Ben Carson also applauded how we are all coming together as one during this crisis. So I guess they didn't hear about all the greed and hoarding at the stores. I guess they didn't know that seniors were seen crying at empty shelves because they didn't have any toilet paper at home and some a-hole just took the last 72 rolls. I guess they are so sequestered away in their lack of reality that they did not know the second, the very moment, Illinois Governor J.B. Prisker made his shelter-in-place announcement for the state, then immediately told viewers, this is not the time to run to the grocery store and hoard. That's exactly what they did. Not that you can blame the people who did run to the aisles where hundreds of coughing, sneezing people had just been, to crowd into stores and get toilet paper that is now fully stacked everywhere. I can't blame them for their actions after 40 years of the government and media and all sorts of civil society telling us that if we just take care of our individual selves, everything will work out great, giving up on any thought of working together collectively. It makes sense that all we think about is ourselves and screw everyone else. That's what Reaganism, that's what neoliberalism is all about. All about Screw everyone. I got mine, and that's all that matters. If the poor suffer, it's not my fault that I have seven cars and live in, with my family of four in a 15,000-square-foot house. It's their fault for being so poor. There's so much unity happening right now, Americans coming together, That is, CBS News reported, the CEO of the Inter- Intercontinental Exchange, which owns the New York Stock Exchange, Jeffrey Specker, who is the husband of Republican U.S. Senator Kelly Loeffler of Georgia, on February 26th sold $3.5 million in shares of the International Exchange. As, uh, or ICE, as it is called, at an average price of $93.42, according to a filing with the Security and Exchange Commission. Since then, ICE shares have plunged nearly 25% amid a, a broader downdraft in stocks. And he wasn't the only one. So did Senator Richard Burr, another Republican. While many were pointing to other senators for selling stock prior to the market collapsing, Loeffler's and Burr's sales seemed to have happened at a moment suspiciously after a meeting with the Trump administration. Yep, there's a lot of unity going around. So much unity that President Trump couldn't get out of the press conference without attacking the fake news and sleepy Joe Biden because nothing says unity like attacking the press and your political competition. Of course, these are the United States, but not under President Trump. All the states at this time of crisis, as far as Trump and the ideologically driven right is concerned, all the states are on their own. Each of the 50 states are now left to find their own medical supplies, which are much needed. This has led the states to bid against each other and drive the price up on, say, much-needed N95 masks to nearly 10 times what they were only days ago. And if that's not bad enough, according to Bloomberg News, the federal government is actually bidding against the states, thus raising the prices even higher and keeping the masks out of the hands of the states, the Fed now says, are responsible for their own response. Trump says he is now a wartime president, despite being at war with several countries throughout his time in office, as if those wars and those troops who fought in them and all those victims of those wars don't matter. But if Trump were president during World War II, he would have told the states, Hey, arm yourselves. Figure out how to fight the Nazis on your own. We're not a shipping clerk, which would have been a real issue on D-Day. Trump and his Fox political party want this crisis to be fixed by the private sector so we can praise them and finally put the last touches on replacing a democratically elected government with one run by corporations and their sponsored candidates, who will likely be wearing corporate logos on their lapels in the very near future, or let's hope they do so we can identify who owns them. Vice President Pence, during one press conference this weekend, praised the great American industry for doing such a great job during this crisis. You know, the great American industry that has completely fallen short in supplying our demands for test kits, for hospital beds, for ventilators, for respirators, for a vaccine. That great American industry that cannot fulfill the demands of its customers, who are at one time citizens of a nation that could actually supply all of those demands and would so willingly, when governments were in the business of protecting their citizenry and not promoting a pro-business ideology that benefits that lines the pockets of your benefactors meanwhile remember how bernie sanders condemned or commended cuban healthcare and then was attacked by anderson cooper and joe biden and just about everyone else for supposedly supporting authoritarianism well while the us is running low on medical personnel so low they are asking those who are retired to come back and emts who have lost their certification to come back as well meanwhile in cuba they have so many doctors and healthcare personnel and equipment. They're sending them to Italy to fight the virus there. The Republican Party and their handlers at Fox want the Trump administration to fix the virus with the market, and it's failing miserably. People will die because their faith in the market was greater than the responsibility to humanity, and they're not about to change that priority. We are dying while they await capitalism as savior but capitalism is about profits not people and that means a lot of us are going to die because in the world of the far right fox news and donald trump if you cannot afford the cost of living then it's time you start dying and get out of their way yes this is hell coming up another pandemic is on our hands and we still refuse to consider the latest plague's root causes at our own peril and that of the generations that follow us. We'll also have rotten history and what's happening on the rest of this week's shows. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell despite 24 7, wall to wall, blanket, whatever you want to call this endless new media coverage of novel coronavirus 2019. Nobody has yet to talk about exactly what caused the pathogen to be released, the virus to be transmitted, and the pandemic to become global so quickly. That's because nobody is willing to do the radical work of actually looking at the root causes of COVID-19. Here to do just that, evolutionary biologist and public health phylogeographer Rob Wallace wrote the monthly review article Notes on a Novel Coronavirus. Rob blogs at Farming Pathogens, which you can find at farmingpathogens.wordpress.com. Welcome to This is Hell, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here, Chuck. You write that outbreaks that make it on the world stage can be game changers, even if they eventually die out. They upend the everyday routines of even a world already in tumult or at war to what extent when this is over do you think the world will be able to go back and simply be the same act as if nothing happened and jump right back on whatever culture we had right back on whatever societal trajectory we were on can we just go back should we and even should we go back should we be nostalgic about the past and try to retain that when this is all over
2: well uh, will we and should we are two different things uh... We can't underestimate the capacity of our rulers to be able to uh, surf along any um, disaster uh, and be able to come out roses on the other end. I'm not giving them more power than they have, but they, uh, given the last uh, 500 years of capitalism, they expect, show themselves to be quite capable of being able to um, jump across any barrier that they've been confronted with. So um, as capitalism, as you so eloquently put, is to organize it on profit first. Uh, it already is in the business of basically putting uh, people through, uh, through the wood chipper, as it were, to uh, turning uh, people and nature into profit. Um, so, I would say that the possibility of a, of a, a few million people dying, um, is after all what wars have been about for so long, um, especially this one in which we can't just blame a bunch of other humans or we could but um, they choose not to it's always easy to just blame the virus and say oh this is sars 2 this is what's causing the damage and leave it at that um, indeed some of the better epidemiology now um, is being organized around how do we keep the, the state and in, in, in effect by extension, capital continuing on Even as uh, people uh, may be found uh, dead in their apartments across the country and across the world, so the uh, there is a very good possibility. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, uh, uh, but if history is any indication, uh, um, capital and rulers are certainly, and and it's uh, uh, capital, it's rulers, and it's uh, representatives in, in state power. Are even now organizing uh, the means and mechanisms by which it can continue the 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 modes of expropriation which caused the uh, uh, pathogen to emerge in the first place. Now, should the virus continue? uh, Should circumstances continue as they are? The obvious answer is no. I mean, I mean, here we all all of us are are cowering in our apartments, or or we already know that people who are infected or who have died and and this is only the beginning of it. Uh, I mean, some of us are, you know, noting on Instagram, oh, day five. I mean, you know, uh, it may very well be a month five or, or maybe month 18. Um, so to the extent to which the economy can survive such a thing, it can't. Um, but uh, whether or not, um, you know, we're going to be able to continue to have the supply lines uh, protected as people get sick and, and uh, pop off, you um, of course, is uh, something that is of concern, should be concern to everyone, but um, as very much uh, indicated in uh, the president's response, concerned more about the state of the stock market than he is about the the, uh, coronavirus driving uh, declines in the market, um, um, many capitalists, and not just Trump, but extending out into much of the Democratic Party and beyond, uh, is very much about uh, saving capital first um, even if it leaves a trail of bodies along the way. So uh, it should not that should not be. And uh, even, uh, the as I was getting at, the epidemiological models are organized around uh, helping to perpetuate that system, uh, providing uh, epidemiological fodder for uh, explaining why workers need to continue in the factories. Um, and uh, I mean, in some sense for Uh, uh, Any socialist government would say, yes, we need uh, uh, more masks. We need to uh, upscale our production of uh, antivirals. Uh, We need to uh, 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 hire basically what we can call a pandemic core so we can have the labor necessary to arrive uh, up to the uh, scale of operations that coronavirus is operating at. Um, Nurses are going to be mowed down, particularly under a context where CDC is... uh, Uh, basically recommending that they could use scarves and bandanas as masks. Um, So this uh, is really a terrible place, but um, we have to uh, put our big boy pants on and uh, get to a place uh, to do basically two things. Uh, One, uh, in the immediate, we need to continue to force maximum pressure on a government that doesn't uh, appear to care for us, Uh, and make them uh, do what they don't want to do, which is to protect people and save people. Uh, On the other hand, and I speak this as a socialist, but, uh, you know, the anarchists do have something in mind, and and that is the the notion of mutual aid and uh, neighborhood brigades. Uh, If the government's not going to be there for you, then we are in a position of having to organize ourselves and... um, not only engage in the self-quarantine in terms of protecting each other, but the self-quarantine isn't enough. If people need help, people need, uh, there should be people um, going around the neighborhoods, knocking on doors and making sure that people are okay. And and those people, those neighborhood brigades need to be well-trained. They need to be trained uh, by, for instance, say the nurse unions. If they at all can have, uh, um, spare the, the personnel to do so, Um, So that acts of kindness Don't lead to to spreading the infection
0: I was just going to say I was very happy on Thursday To be speaking to a couple of activists That those mutual aid and neighborhood brigades Are starting up here in Chicago A lot of people are posting on social media That you can either save the economy Or you can save the people In your response to COVID You point out that the priority for Trump Seems to be saving the economy What would you say to somebody Who's a defender, supporter of Trump Or somebody who's a libertarian Who argues that saving the economy will save lives. What's wrong with that kind of thinking? What's wrong with prioritizing the economy over people with the idea that you are saving lives and doing so?
2: Well, I mean, right now we have a, a fairly well-functioning economy that it's not doing a good job saving people. Uh, I mean, if you are set up your economy in such a way that uh, the entirety of your health care system has been largely stripped over the last 40 years that you're on a just-in-time uh, neoliberal program, and uh, you are not in a position to be able to uh, deal with such a surge of uh, cases. And we're just in early days. And already uh, people are fighting in Bronx hospitals, uh, doctors and uh, patients over over uh, uh, protective equipment, uh, you know, the, uh, the mask and such. Um, so your economy is not in a position to save people at this point in time. And uh, right now... Um, we are. We must be put ourselves in a better position to uh, upsurge in our capacity to help and save uh, save people. I mean, um, you know, the in in essence, the emergency extends into the structural uh, uh, portion of the country, part of the country. Um, the emergency isn't just the virus. The emergency isn't just the infections. The emergency is extend into our uh, incapacity to be able to respond to such a thing, and so. Um, The economy isn't uh, synonymous with capitalism. I mean, you can have foundational shifts in in the way we produce things uh, in such a way that at the present time, we need to focus on the classic Marxist notion of use value, that we need to produce uh, drugs and, uh, if possible, vaccines and and even the basic medical equipment necessary to keep people alive so that there is an economy on the other side of this. I would oppose going back to an expropriated expropriating economy, uh, but if we were to do that, certainly at this point in juncture, we would need to suspend uh, that kind of uh, way of thinking.
0: The other thing I don't really understand is, as you point out, the, the second largest Ebola uh, outbreak just happened in the Democratic Republic of Congo. It burned itself out apparently on March 3rd, or it ended on March 3rd. Twenty Over 2,200 people died. You write that should the virus prove less infectious, the COVID-19, or deadly than initially thought, civilization goes on, however many people are killed. The H1N1 2009 influenza outbreak that worried so many a decade plus ago pr- proved less severe than it first seemed, but even that strain penetrated the global population and quietly killed patients at magnitudes far beyond those first follow-up dismissals. H1N1-2009 killed as many as 579,000 people its first year, producing complications in 15 times more cases than initially projected from lab tests alone. If the number was so high, if we are so aware of these epidemics and pandemics happening over and over again then what explains why the united states seemed to drop its guard when it comes to protecting itself against pandemics why did the whole world seem to drop its guard in protecting itself against the pandemic when pandemics have been happening on a regular basis over the last 20 years
2: that's an excellent question um and i would say uh, two things come to mind um first uh I would say that the economy that we've organized our means of social reproduction is uh engaged in expropriation and it uh, it involves in in essence assuming that earth is an infinite uh source of resources and so uh, as we uh, have exported our neoliberal model around the world uh, more of the world is engaged in the kind of uh, deforestation and development Uh, that leads to the greater uh, spillover of these pathogens out of their uh, wild uh, reservoirs. Um, That in part explains, in in my view, explains the um, increasing frequency of the emergence of these pathogens as well as the increasing uh, geographic and temporal extent of of the outbreak. So, you know, uh, Ebola, you know, from 1976 on, um, you know, it's... uh, merge and take out a village or a guerrilla trooper or two, and it's a terrible thing. You have uh, case fatality ratios of 90%, uh, um, but then it burn out, and that'd be it. And then 2013 comes on, and, and uh, Ebola is long four, five, ten years circulating in, in West Africa. All of a sudden, it spills over and infects the 35,000 people, killing 11,000 and leaving bodies in the streets of uh, regional capitals um why how did that happen i mean if you look at the genetics of the virus itself there's nothing's changed i mean it was very little change at same uh, clinical course same uh, generation time uh, in terms of infections uh in terms of its uh, momentum and, and yet uh it went from taking out villages to uh uh, uh taking flights out into back to europe and america I'd say. Um, and uh, our group's uh, hypothesis is that uh, in the course, uh, as neoliberalism, uh, you know, turns to West Africa, and uh, and this is kind of the source of the last of the kind of virgin farmland available, uh, what was previously a, um, a kind of subsistence of agroforestry is, is, undergoes a kind of classic enclosure and uh, protealization that uh, turns uh, locals from uh, uh, just, you know, getting enough for themselves, growing enough for themselves or, or local trade into moving toward direction of, of um, uh, national production or, or even uh, kind of uh, uh, export economy. And uh, our group focused on uh, palm oil, uh, which is, uh, you know, one of the largest uh, growing, fastest growing uh, uh, source of, uh, uh, of cash crop in the, in the world. And it's outgrown its base in uh, Southeast Asia, and uh, looking for other places to grow and and, uh, grow out. And so West Africa has become a a primary center for for new growth. And um, so um, Liberia has long been a a kind of center of uh, corporate production going back to uh, to the days of rubber tapping. But uh, Guinea next door uh, was largely closed off. It started to Um, turn its kind of subsistence palm oil into more uh, at the national level kind of parastatal companies uh, that were subsequently opening up to multinational uh, uh, production at the time in which uh, Ebola spilled over. Um, If you look at the maps uh, or or satellite pictures, you can see uh, all sorts of um, growing uh, patches of palm oil in in the region. And... um, So uh, this gets into the story of the bats, you have frugivore bats, insectivore bats, they're uh, common reservoirs for Ebola, and um, um, all of a sudden, they're not going to roll over and die as deforestation uh, progresses. Uh, I mean, a lot of hosts, a lot of wild animals are going to die off, and then we're in the middle of a classic extinction event in that regard. Um, But some of the animals have a behavioral plasticity enough to allow them to be able to adjust to circumstances. Bats are one, uh, wild waterfowl are another. Um, And uh, the bats actually start to gravitate to these um, agricultural plantations. And so, uh, I mean, what's not to like? I mean, you have uh, no competitors, no predators. You have this wonderful space between your roosting sites and your foraging sites. Uh, and of course, along the way, you increase your interface with humans. Uh, and so there's an increase in the uh, the the rate of uh, spillover and also the increase in diversity of uh, pathogens that are making their way from uh, these wild animals into to humans. Whether indirectly through livestock, uh, as some of the influences are doing,, um, uh, or indirectly, um, or directly right into the humans. And, uh, so that's the neoliberal, uh, impact on the, uh, <clears throat> supply end, as it were, uh, uh, but on the demand end, uh, if, uh, if I may, that, uh, uh, it's a long story well told, uh, of, uh, structural adjustment programs where countries in order to get international loans have to basically change their economies to suit, uh, international investors so you have a decline in um public health and animal health expenditures uh so that anybody who shows up at a hospital with Ebola won't get the treatment or even the diagnosis necessary to say oh this guy's got Ebola um you know and it's hard it's the, the, the the um The uh, uh, symptoms are quite noisy and it's not always clear if someone has uh, Ebola or loss of fever or something like that. But then, you know, without uh, with the structurally adjusted public health system then once it gets going, uh, uh, a pathogen can make its way into the city. And this goes uh, hand in glove with the shifts in uh, migration patterns. Uh, People are engaged in more cycle migration. They're forced off their land. So they move to the city. Uh, but they only work there a little bit, go back home to, uh, the, uh, during the growing season to help out. Uh, so that increases um, the, what I call a peri-urban circuit that goes on between uh, um, wild uh, life spillover uh, from the deepest forest in through past the peri-urban urban continuum and into a major city Uh, where uh, uh, it's very much connected into the international travel network, which is, of course, uh, as integrated as it's ever been. Uh, So you have a pathogen that might merge out of the deepest forest from a a bat or uh, a bird or any other wild animal and uh, can, in a matter of weeks, uh, end up infecting
0: uh, beachgoers uh, in Miami. So let's get to the original source of this. You point out that the unknowns of the exact source, infectivity, penetrance and possible treatments together explain why epidemiologists and public health officials are worried about 2019 and as you were calling it at the time. Unlike the seasonal influenza cited by pandemic skeptics, the uncertainty rates uh, rattles practitioners. Why does the exact source matter and how much does it matter? Can a vaccine or treatment be created without knowing the exact source? Well,
2: the the exact source does matter for good reasons and bad. Uh, the bad reasons, if I may start with, uh, off with that first, is that everybody wants to blame everybody else. Uh, the system that helped produce this, if I were to say agribusiness has a, a fundamental hand in the emergence of covid Uh, 19, nobody wants to have that hung on their head. So uh, over the last 10 years, you see uh, agribusiness and other industries uh, basically develop uh, classic um, uh, crisis control plans in which uh, everyone else is uh, blamed, uh, you know, and has historically, particularly for the influenzas. uh, China has been blamed. Uh, They do uh, bear some um, responsibility, and we can talk about that, if not today, some other time. Uh, but in, in addition, it uh, they might blame even uh, contract smallholders uh, who are raising uh, their livestock for not adhering to company uh, plans when, in fact, the, live, the smallholders are doing exactly that. And uh, it is that is the means by which pathogens have emerged and become much more deadly. So that's that's the bad reason why um, the source matters. The good reason, of course, is, yeah, we, we do want to know where uh, these pathogens emerge, because then ostensibly, uh, and going back to your notion of what do we do for the future, it's like, then we can do things differently to make sure that these pathogens don't emerge in the first place. I mean, whether it's COVID-19 or Ebola, you know, what we've done to the forests and, and other net um, uh, um, wild environments is that uh, uh, these environments uh, are indeed the source of multiple pathogens, but they also engage in a kind of uh, uh, self-regulation. Um, if you've ever been in a, in a rainforest, it's a very complex place that I means a lot going on. And so any host with a pathogen is unlikely to come across another host in any in any short order and basically string up a, a whole line of transmission out of the forest out into out into your local city. Um, so in essence, forests are in, in just uh, in their very being, uh, in, are able to produce what's called environmental stochasticity. That's a kind of complexity in the forest that damps down any single outbreak in such a way that if Ebola spills over into a, a village, terrible thing, it st- stays there. Um, but what um, agribusiness and logging and mining and has, have done is basically not only is cut down forests, but strip their ecologies in such a way that you reduce the complexity so these pathogens... Uh, have a much uh, smoother, straight shot through that peri urban continuum uh, to the local city. Um, so, um, we do want to know where the, the pathogen came from. We do want to know that bats uh, are are immunologically uh, suited for really clamping down on pathogens so that they can continue to fly, and that ends up uh, offering a selection pressure on coronaviruses and Ebola viruses to become much, very, to replicate as. Fast and hard, as possible, against the bat uh, immune system, so that selects for a virulence that, uh, once it spills over into humans, um, causes considerable damage. Um, you know, and so these uh, things do matter um, uh, in the in the in the emergency in terms of um, potential. Um, drugs and vaccines and in, in, uh, medical care that we might devise uh, in the course of uh, trying to treat these things. Uh, uh, but it also, it matters um, in terms of how we think about our emergency. Um, if we're just so focused on the virus, then we'll be perfectly happy on, on working on using uh the means at hand to uh, stop it, which we should, of course, stop it, but uh, in such a way that in essence perpetuates the very system that causes cause of damage in the first place. If we assimilate the the sources of the uh, emergence of the virus into the way we handle the emergency, then we will conduct our, our emergency operations differently. Uh, we realize, oh yeah, we are continuing to cut into the forest, Uh, This outbreak here is one of many over the last 20 years, as you brought up, and it will be likely that we will continue to select for pathogens that emerge this way into the future. Uh, If you, we would be delusional to think that um, this is a one uh, in a 100 years event. um, 1918 uh, is not, uh, may have been the signpost uh, behind us, but it is not the signpost ahead. It's It's in all likelihood that a pathogen, uh, this deadly or worse, will likely emerge uh, much sooner than uh, we have plotted.
0: In this idea of, as you write about, it's an emergency right now, so certain things have to be done, and we just move forward because of our desperation in these times. Uh, what's the potential for things to have changed dramatically due to what critics have may think are overreaches by the government and their allies, yet allowing them because of current circum- circumstances? But once this is over all of a sudden we realize that we've mistakenly, what we've mistakenly done out of fear and desperation. What is the potential for us to give far more authority to government officials now as an act of desperation that would haunt us into the future?
2: Well, that that is a danger, isn't it? Uh, Here's the thing, Uh, you know, something called type one and type two errors. Type one, uh, you, um, uh, you, don't, you do respond, excuse me, you don't respond even though that there's a clear and present danger. Um, Type two is you, you do respond and um, it's, oh, maybe I flipped that around, my apologies. But the point is, is that there's these two types of errors you do, where one error, you don't act and we are in true danger, and the other error is you do act, but it really wasn't going to be a problem, right? And I would rather be the, the other, the second type, where we overreact and it really wasn't a problem. Because if you don't act, and it is a problem, we end up where we are now, which is we are totally with our pants down around our ankles and in the position to take what is a deadly pathogen for sure, but in the scheme of things of what is presently circulating, really not as bad as it, as what is out potentially out there circulating. And um, so uh, it's better to overreact in such a way that, you um, If we arise to the occasion that it is indeed a problem, then we can handle it. Um, And if it isn't a problem, um, at least we have, in essence, run a a, a pandemic um, simulation, as it were. So we are prepared. Now, I don't think this is a simulation. This is a this is the real deal. People getting sick and people are dying. So it's a we are uh, we should be very much uh, on point on this. Um, now, here's the issue. Um, one, I, in fact, I don't think uh, even the, the best estimates uh, in terms of what we need to do are, are enough. Um, I think the, um and I have a lot to criticize the Chinese, but in retrospect, they did exactly right. Uh, they didn't just do mitigation. They went to all out suppression. And it sucks to be in your house, in, in essence, uh, under curfew and, uh, you know, all those things. But there's a level of, of uh, reaction that we have not grasped. I mean, uh, I, you know, wh- whether you read or, or, you, uh, or what you watch is that what the Chinese did, they do things that have, are not even in our plate in terms of our understanding of how serious this might very well be. I mean, there are, uh, you know, things written up on the on, along the lines of, um, you know, people uh, when they go outside, they're, they gear up like they're going on to another planet. Like they have goggles, gloves, powder wear. They have masks. They go out, they do their thing. and When they come back home, they leave their outerwear outside. I mean, this is a level of, of, of reaction that we are not participating in. No one's telling us this. No one's involved in this. When someone delivers food, they have the bike, they, they, they stop the bike, they walk away from the bike. Then the person getting the food goes to the bike, uh, p- picks up the package, and reads the slip that has the temperature of the cook and the temperature of the latest temperature of the biker. Um, and then, you know, pays off and then walks away from the bike before the other uh, the food delivery guy takes his bike back. I mean, that sounds absurd. And as I watched it on TV, I was like, oh, man. But you are beginning to grasp and understand the seriousness by which uh, they're taking it. And they have indeed, uh, you know, pushed back the number of deaths down uh, or even the number of new cases uh, way down uh, to a point that uh, allows them to be continue to be free. On the other hand, our more laissez faire efforts about this, our modelers are saying, well, we can go uh, back and forth between uh, self quarantine and being uh, uh, out and about uh, working the economy, keeping it alive. Their estimates are uh, 18 months doing this back and forth. And you go, well, uh, damn, like, what population's the free one? Because um, if China, China basically, uh, and now, and of course, it, it might bounce back too. That's the thing we're keeping our eye on: whether or not the once uh, China uh, takes the, uh, you know, their foot off the pedal, whether or not it will bounce back. And um, but uh, for the most part, they went ho whole hog, as it were, to uh, clamp down on the outbreaks and did contact tracing in the middle of the of the the peak. Uh, of the outbreak in a way that we are incapable of doing even in the early days. And it really speaks to, uh, in essence, our collapse in public health over the last 40, 50 years. We neglected public health uh, in favor of individualized um, medical care, or we spun it off uh, uh, monetizing it. Um, So yeah, let me just leave it at that.
0: So it's globalization, it's austerity, because globalization spreads the pandemic quicker. It's austerity because we cut all of the funding for public health care. It's deforestation because that's imposed on nations by the World Bank. Deforestation that's not only leading to the spread of pandemics, but deforestation that's leading to climate change. How much are all of these things interconnected? How much is the fight against future pandemics connected to the fight against climate change?
2: Oh, I mean, it's, uh, they're foundationally integrated. I mean, uh, and the notion that, uh, you know, capital operates as if um, it is off the planet, you know, that it doesn't exist, it even operate on the planet, that the, the, the basal metabolism of the ecologies of our planet are merely the meat locker that they bring food out. Uh, and, um, you know, when I think of a... Um, um, oh god who's the uh oh elon musk when he put his car into space um i mean that's exactly what capitalism is it's off the planet it's not it's no longer uh, operating under the notion that we as human beings are animals and living uh, beings that are part and particle of an integrated uh, um, ecology. And, uh, I mean, both climate change and these pandemics, they're not just functionally integrated in the sense of as the planet warms, the uh, changes in the geography of the pathogens. I mean, they are integrated through the idea, uh, ideological, uh, basically, totalitarianism of uh, of uh, neoliberal capitalism that's been largely imposed on a planet in such a way that uh, are, not only are we as humans alienated out of uh, our our work, uh, but uh, uh, nature itself has been alienated in such a way that we can't even uh, think through uh, or operate uh, in nature's uh, context, except if it's through the lens of commodification. Um, And in such a way, I mean, nature's not going to, care less. I mean, at some point, uh, you know, I mean, this is not sustainable at some point. I mean, I'm talking like a big time. uh, I mean, I'm not a prepper. I'm not a uh, a catastrophist. But, you know, we really are, uh, you know, coming to multiple um, uh, environmental precipices that are all integrating in a way that uh, really, um, it increases the, uh, uncertainty. You know how we're all uncertain now about whether our cough is actually, you know, COVID or not. You're not really sure. I mean, that's part of the, the terror and the danger of all this. You're not sure. Uh, it's not like seasonal influenza. We've got a bead on it and, you know, vaccines and we you know what it is. We know it's course and all this, this, we have no idea. Now multiply that, uh, many times over for, you know, Several hundred years going forward in terms of not understanding, you know, in this kind of existential dread of the uh, you know this is hell, <laughs> uh, the understanding of what the of what the uh, blowback is going to be. Um, I mean, uh, so uh, those things are are foundationally integrated. and 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 the way i the best way to think through this on uh, any of these problems is, is to move away from these absolute geographies. and what I mean is looking at, Uh, uh, let's say, an outbreak happening, emerging out of China or moving out of Africa. I mean, those, you know, the details do indeed matter for sure. Um, But the focus on it removes, uh, gets uh, our eye off the ball. And that is um, these more relational geography, how circuits of capital uh, circle the world. And you think through, well, who funded the deforestation that led to the spillover in the first place? And this is why I view places like London, Hong Kong and New York as disease hotspots. Not just because of the present outbreak, but these are the sources of the capital that drove the deforestation developed that caused the spillover in uh, the, the farthest hinterlands across the globe. And so, if you want to stop uh, not just pandemics, but uh, uh, climate change, you're going to have to foundationally get on uh, what capitalism is and why it cannot continue and start thinking what uh, integrated uh, socially and economically and ecologically integrated uh, economy is and um, and what that involves. So it's time to put your big boy pants on and uh, all of us, whatever gender you are, and, and come to grips with that we are at a foundational um, uh, moment, a historical moment that's foundational. It's either we do something that foundationally changes the nature of our our mode of social reproduction or basically we can continue to tower in our apartments from here and out because uh in other words the end of society and uh in terms of uh you know d- degrading back into what some of my anarchist agrarian friends my the farmers out in the midwest i know who are all about the kind of like uh, prepper stuff and they're leftists and so they therefore for them they see the writing on the wall we're going to you know de- uh degrade to you know this kind of bioregionalisms and local food systems that are aren't about uh you know the nice little um uh, market uh, uh, farmers market on Saturday mornings, right? They're they're thinking something else, and I, I know farmers across not just the states but elsewhere they're they're closing down shop. There, are, this is what smallholders do, and that large agribusiness can't. They they can uh, you know uh, cut down uh, shop and and just uh, do subsistence farming a little until the crisis passes.
0: But the, what we have discussed this morning the World Bank's role, deforestation's role, globalization's role, austerity's role in uh, the causes of COVID-19. You are never going to hear any of those discussions. Maybe austerity, Democrats might point to the Trump administration cutting funding for research into pandemics. They might, might barely touch on austerity, barely, but they're not going to discuss any of these other issues for why COVID happened, what happens when all of those sources for covid nineteen are ignored by the establishment media? What happens to the popular opinion of what is happening on the ground right now?
2: yeah, excuse me, Chuck, I, I missed that could you could you uh, repeat the question
0: what what happens when the establishment media oh. ignores austerity, ignores globalization, ignores the right. world uh, world bank and structural adjustment policies?
2: um well, I mean, what happens is, is that um, I mean, they're, they're after, you know, uh, uh, recapitulating the power. Uh, and, um, I mean, you know, there might be some individuals who are actually generally concerned about this. I mean, I, I would say a lot of people are concerned about this, certainly, but um, not to the point of willing to, you know, drop a, um, what they've invested uh, in a, a metaphysics and a political economy that rewards them so well. I mean, this is gets to H. Bruce, Bruce Franklin's notion uh, that, uh, you know, Cedric James, um, uh, Frederick James, excuse me, took on, which is that, um, you know, uh, uh capitalism is more important, uh, than, than saving the planet. I mean, it, it, it's more important that capitalism continue to exist on the planet. And, um, I mean, this is a foundationally a sociopathic, uh, uh, rule. Uh, so you have people in, who are, are magically well uh, groomed, and, and uh, I mean, not to make it personal like that, but I mean, it, you know, all the accoutrements of what would be a sensible, uh, interesting, vivacious personalities that are absolutely off their rocker. And it has it doesn't have to do with uh, individual uh, mental health or anything. It has to do um, with a kind of a you know, sociological implant, as it were, uh, in terms of the way they view the world and, and how they move on. And at some point, you have to say, "I'm not going to participate in that anymore, as best one can," and start to uh, organize the, uh, back against that. Um, you know, I, I used to argue with agribusiness representatives. Um, I don't even do that anymore. I think it's a waste of time. I mean, I do sometimes. You know, if it, if, it, if there's a broader audience to make a point to, but um, those people are off their rockers. And uh, well, let me take that back. Some of them are off their rockers. The true believers are utter morons, and they're not allowed at the hand the wheel of of these companies and uh, organizations. Uh, The other people, the cynics, who know what's going down and um, are doing the best uh, they can to squeeze out the last little bit. I mean, we have what's called the Lauderdale's paradox, where as the amount of uh, the primary forest declines, it becomes that much more valuable. So there's a a greater push for the companies to get the last little bit. And I, I, you know, and it speaks to my, my third, uh, I go back to when I was in third grade and I was in the class and I, I saw these and I knew even deforestation then, but I, list, I look at the map and I say, oh, at least there's, the, there's the, the Congo and the Amazon, right? Those are the lungs of the planet they're going to continue to produce oxygen. We wouldn't be so foolish to cut into that. It's exactly what we're doing. They're so willing and able to drive um, destruction of, the, of our, the very basis by which we uh, eat and breathe into the ground for, for a, a couple bucks. And, um, and you know, the notion that somehow the market's going to figure this out. I mean, uh, you know, um, I mean, is the market figuring anything out for us out now? I mean, at this point in time of a pandemic that requires a, a massive uh, governmental, governmental, intergovernmental response. And, um, you know, uh, I mean, what are we going to do? We're going to, you know, monetize this expansion of, um, of a home lab kits that each of us can, can develop our own vaccine? Is that the libertarian way of viewing it? I mean, I... So, um... Uh, to answer your question, I, it's, um... You know, we are at a, a moment where we have to wake the fuck up. I mean, and, and get out of this notion that the ethoses that even we on the left have assimilated are going to be enough to get us out of this present moment. And... Um, you know, the fact of the matter is we're going to know all of us are going to know people who have, will have died in this. And um, it's it's early yet. And we don't we can't believe that. Right. But it's already happening. And, um, um, you know, you have to uh, reach to a moment in which you decide as a human being that you're going to try to unplug out of a sociopathic system that uh, not only destroys people in this country, but very much around the world. And, you um, um, certainly, uh, whether or not you have kids, there's a sense of, um, you know, gets back to more of the indigenous notions of, uh, us borrowing the earth, uh, from our grandparents, our, our grandkids than, uh, than just using it like this. And, um, you know, really speaks to, uh, you know, I've had my own, uh, revelations in the last couple years of um, how plugged in I have been in in the assumptions of the system. And I find myself increasingly radicalized uh, week to week about this. And, um, you know, and and realizing that, uh, you know, for 500 years, there were peoples around the world who objected to our our sociopathy. And and it uh, understood that we were very much part of a, a larger ecosystem and we needed to respect that. And uh, I mean, it doesn't say that we don't get to survive. We do have the right to appropriate things from nature, but expropriating nature to the point that we destroy the various spaces uh, by which we walk about, it's ridiculous. I mean, look, look how lucky we are. We're on a planet, we're on the surface of a planet where we get to walk around without a spacesuit. We don't have to have a mask on our face and huffing can- canisters of air. Although maybe that's the direction we're going. I mean, you can, you know, monetize or monetize the water in such a way that we turned it into a fictitious commodity. People buy it at the store. I mean, can you imagine, uh, uh, you know, Amazon getting into the business of, um, uh, in, you know, uh, sending out uh, uh, packages of air canisters, how much money they can make? I mean, do we want to move in a direction where where we basically destroy all these uh, free ecosystem services, um, you know, like clean water, clean air, and and food. I mean, you put a seed in the ground, it grows on its own. Just about, you just need a little tending. I mean, it's, that's astonishing. I mean, you you uh, we have lost touch with those basic uh, understanding that, um, you know, I you know, it's wonderful to look at the stars and, and other planets and all this, but uh, the notion that we would be willing to you know destroy the very basis of our existence here in favor of uh, some sociopathic abstraction is, is off the wall.
0: One last question for you Rob We've been speaking with evolutionary biologist And public health phylogeographer Rob Wallace Who wrote the monthly review article Notes on a novel coronavirus Rob blogs at Farming Pathogens Which you can find at farmingpathogens.wordpress.com Rob's next book is The Upcoming Revolution Space He's also the author of the 2016 book Big Farms Make Big Flu Dispatches on Infectious Disease Agribusiness and the Nature of Science Rob one last question for you And as we do with each and every one of our guess our final question is the question from hell the question we hate to ask you might hate to answer or our audience is going to hate your response and I have a feeling that this is going to be the question from hell that we're going to be asking each and every one of our guests and it's the question from hell that everybody is asking each other right now Rob how are you feeling
2: I I am not feeling that well. I um, actually have uh, a COVID infection and um, I'm on day 15. And, um, you know, it's only in the last couple of days where my symptoms have uh, emerged Um, bouts of uh, shortness of breath. um, I'm starting to feel a kind of. Peripheral neuropathy, which is a little numbness in the hands and feet, which is really not a good sign. It means it might be a lack of oxygen in that direction. So after this uh, interview, I'm taking myself, uh, I'm plugging myself. This is the last interview I do for a while, and I'm, I'm taking myself to the hospital. And What I'm most concerned about is I don't have a fever, I have no coughing, no mucus, and I think the lack of symptoms is a little worrying because it's saying that the pathogen is kind of uh, able willing and able to to trick the the body into not deploying its physical defenses so um uh, i feel really good right now talking to you and i think i appreciate the opportunity to do this but um uh there's parts of the day particularly in the evening where i just feel like absolute crap and this is not an influenza people this is the real deal uh, some of us it will be fine. Some of us aren't going to make it. And I'm really sorry to hear uh, for that. Um, but you have to take this very seriously. It's just the real deal. And um, I, I just wish everyone the best. Hang in there. There will be a tomorrow and uh, we will make our way through this. And let's just make it into a place where we don't have to go through this again.
0: Rob, when you are feeling better, when you're feeling up to it, please contact us. We'll want to have you back on the show immediately because this is a fantastic conversation. Your writing on this over the years has been spectacular. So thank you so much for all the work that you've done, and the best of luck to you and yours, sir. All
2: right. Thank you, Chuck. I appreciate that. Take care.
0: Live from late capitalism where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, which is being proven over and over again right now. This is hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history on March 27th, 1915, 105 years ago this Friday. Public health authorities in Long Island, New York, finally succeeded in tracking down and arresting Mary Mallon, an Irish immigrant who, uh, fo- who for the past 15 years had often worked as a cook for various wealthy families in the New York area. Malin's work history had been connected with several outbreaks of typhoid fever, and in 1907, after doctors identified her as an asymptomatic carrier of the often fatal typhoid bacteria, she had been arrested and forced into quarantine. Can you imagine such a thing, carrying an infectious, deadly disease around with you while not showing any symptoms whatsoever, not having a clue you have the disease while leaving bodies of the afflicted in your wake? I mean, who could imagine such a thing? In the news media, Malin became popularly known as Typhoid Mary, which is a horrible cocktail, but Mary stubbornly refused to cooperate with authorities and would not accept the fact that she was a disease carrier. And with denialism so rampant here in the U.S. today, don't be surprised if this happens again with COVID-19. After three years held in isolation, three freaking years, and you thought a weekend of shelter in place was bad in Chicago. Mary was released on the condition that she no longer work as a cook, but by the time she was arrested again in Long Island five years later, she had resumed her former, former career, Moving quickly from one job to, the, to another under a series of assumed names, because she was apparently really annoying, Mallon was kept in quarantine for the rest of her life, and it's believed that her actions may have caused the deaths of as many as 50 people. Quarantine for the rest of your life. Shelter in place for the rest of your life. She lived until she was a bit past 69 years old, and if I'm doing my math correctly here... She was put into quarantine around 1923 and died in 1938, so that's the last 15 years of her life kept in quarantine. Let that be a lesson to any of you who are in denial about having COVID-19. You could end up like Typhoid Mary and be imprisoned in quarantine for the rest of your life. On the other hand, threatening victims with punishment is probably not the best public health initiative. In Rotten History, March 28, 1968, or 52 years ago this Saturday, Students at the Cooperative Education Institute, a school for low-income students in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, stage a demonstration to protest high prices of meals at the school's state-run restaurant. Let's see, 1968, student protest, Brazil, and it made Rotten History. So I'm certain the police are not too far behind. When military police arrived, see, I told you. When military police arrived, some students responded by throwing rocks. And I get the idea of throwing rocks at cops, but it's never a good long-term strategy. The police withdrew, but when they returned a short time later, see, shots were fired from a nearby building and some students panicked and ran as the police stormed the restaurant. In the chaos that ensued, the police commander shot and killed an 18-year-old student named Edson Luis de Lima Suto. The other students refused to surrender Edson's body to the police and instead carried it to a nearby government building where an autopsy and funeral were quickly held, which must have been a very, very intense scene. Edson quickly became a national martyr, and the days after his death saw huge demonstrations in cities across Brazil kicking off a year of often violent protests against the military regime, which had overthrown Brazil's left-leaning government four years earlier in a coup backed by the United States and the Catholic Church. A military coup to overthrow a left-leaning government in Latin America—a coup that was backed by the U.S. and the Catholic Church—and clearly, the Catholic Church was acting like Christ in this situation because, as you remember, Christ was always talking about coups. Okay, that's completely. Believable every part of that is completely Believable except for Christ supporting coups Later that year the Brazilian Regime enacted new measures To crush the student movement and strengthen An authoritarian dictatorship that would censor Free speech torture dissidents and remain In power until 1985 that Dictatorship is now back in power Thanks to the U.S. and its lawfare program of Weaponizing Brazil's justice system Against their own democracy and overthrowing Both the democratically elected president Lula As well as the democratically elected Uh, President Dilma, replacing them with Jair Bolsonaro, who has direct links back to the dictatorship, as do many of his advisors and cabinet members. So Rotten History has returned, and now lives again in the present. That's Rotten History, and Brazil's Rotten Present, and This is Hell. Alex, who's on tomorrow's Tuesdays live, This Is Hell, streaming at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time on ThisIsHell.com. Uh,
1: Joshua Gans will be on to talk about his medium piece, A War Footing, Surfing the Curve.
0: Yeah, it's not a happy <laughs> story about COVID. It's uh,
1: the hard econo- the hard part of the economics of COVID-19.
0: I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show and podcast and live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Rob Wallace for being our guest today. Thanks to Alex for producing. Thanks to Ronaldo for Rotten History. This week's Hangover Cure is Cincinnati Chili, and I want to suggest you not use this week's Hangover Cure. Uh, Special thanks to Theron Humiston again for doing everything he can to make this sound better and better. Truly revolting radio. This is Hell. Talk to you tomorrow. My demon is on my butt. Uh, Sorry, Uh, (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller
1: is like a wrong drop. And my
0: demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.
1: I got distracted because I found a tear in one of my gloves and now I'm freaking out. Okay, here we go. Oh wait, that was the wrong one too. Damn, I am fucked up. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.